So good to be with you today. Uh, my name is Mike, if we haven't met yet, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Active. And if this is your first Sunday with us, there's a place called Guest Central, and our team would love to meet you. They, they have a free gift waiting for you. If you brought somebody, carry them to Guest Central, throw them over your shoulder. We would love to put a face with a name. And it's the first step in many steps of telling better stories around here. As Joe mentioned, we're in a series called With You Always. And this series is based on the last words that Jesus shared with his first disciples. The last thing that he said is, I am with you always. And those words carried those first disciples, those first century Christians. They were moved and motivated by the promise of Jesus, the promise of God in the flesh, that they would not have to do this life on their own, but that they would do this life with the God who is the giver of life and sustainer of life. And so it, it challenged them. It motivated them. They lived inspiring, irresistible lives. Lives that are recorded in the New Testament. Lives that are teased out in a letter called Revelation. John was there when Jesus said, I'm with you always. And John lived a life that was inspiring, that was irresistible. He lived a life that caught the attention of the empire of Rome. And they didn't like him. And they didn't like the way that he was living. And so they banned him to an island. And it was on this island, the island of Patmos, where Jesus shows up and gives him, John, a vision of heaven. A vision of what it's like to tell the story of Jesus on earth. And it's beautiful and miraculous. It's also kind of crazy and kind of weird. And so over the last few weeks, we've been walking through this letter of Revelation. And it's been inspiring and challenging to a lot of us. Last week, we ended with this phrase. The phrase that helps us to tell the story of Jesus. That we would have our foot down and our hands up and our eyes focused. And we talked about how putting our foot down on the promises of God allows us to live confidently. Because God doesn't break his promise to you or me, that we would lift our hands in worship of God and that we would keep our eyes focused on the purpose that God has placed in us and the purpose that God has invited us to step into on this earth in our lives. Now, some of the ground rules for revelation that we've shared over the last few weeks are important for where we're going. So let me just remind you, if you're new, some of the ground rules of this letter. First, this letter isn't written linear, meaning that it doesn't go from chapter one to chapter two to chapter three, and it tells a complete story. This letter is literally God showing John, hey, take a look at this. And, and now, and now look at this and quickly turn and hear this and quickly experience that. And so John is just writing what he sees. John is just writing what he experiences. And what we're about to enter into in Revelation chapter four, is another moment where John turns and sees and hears something remarkable. And if you have a Bible with you, I wanna invite you to turn to Revelation chapter four. If you have access to the Bible app, you can open that up and turn to Revelation four. And again, the, the verses are always on the screen for you if you don't have access to that. And as you're turning there, here's another ground rule that we need to hold on to. That Revelation cannot say to us what it, didn't say to them. Meaning that we have to see this letter for what it is, a letter that was written 
to them for us. It was a letter to a specific group of people in a specific time for a specific purpose. And we can gain from it, but it doesn't speak about us. It was written to them first. And so those are some of the ground rules that we have for this letter. It's really important. And in light of that, I want to take a phrase that we learned last week, the hands up in worship phrase. And I want to talk about that because what we see next is this incredible moment of worship in Revelation chapter four. And it's a moment that is about songs, like what we've just done here, but it's also much deeper and much better and much bigger than just songs. What we'll actually discover in the next few minutes together is that worship is hard and worship is holy. Worship is hard and worship is holy. And I wanna explain what I mean by that phrase in, in three specific ways. I wanna talk about you as a worshiper because whether you know it or not, we all worship. We worship something or someone. And the invitation of the letter of Revelation is to reorient our lives around the one who is worth our time and attention and affection. And then I wanna talk about I want to talk about why we do this. Like, why do we worship? And then I want to talk about who deserves our worship. So let's start in Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 2. I want to read a few verses to you, what John sees next, and then we'll talk it through. Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders and they were dressed in white and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Verse six, in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. That's interesting, right? The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face of a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Verse nine, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Like what a, what a beautiful, remarkable, ridiculous scene, right? And maybe when you read things like this and you're perusing through the scriptures, you come to maybe a story or a situation or an experience or a moment like this, and you're like, see, this is why I struggle reading the Bible, right? Because you're like, there's beings, living beings with eyes on the front and on the back. I think I saw that in the last Freddy Krueger movie that I watched, right? Like it just, it's, it's trippy, it's weird, it's ridiculous, but it's also beautiful and miraculous. And so whenever you come across something like this or anything in the scriptures that you don't quite understand, or maybe a better question is, what do I do with this? 
This is why understanding that the scriptures were written to a specific group of people for us is so important. So in order to understand this, we got to start with what it means to them. Like, why is John writing this? Why is Jesus showing John this? And why is this necessary for those first century Christians? Now, just as a reminder, in week one, if you weren't here, here's what we talked about. We talked about how in the first century, being a follower of Jesus means putting your life on the line. Literally putting your life on the line. Not hypothetical, not metaphorical, like literally calling Jesus Lord meant that you would be crucified, you would be killed. And these first century Christians would not relent. They would not give up. They would not stop their following of Jesus because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God in the flesh. And they suffered because of that. They were tortured because of that. And many of them lost their lives because of that. And this letter of revelation arrives as a source of comfort, as a source of courage, as a source of calm for their hearts and for their souls and for their minds. And the reason why was because in that world, Rome demanded the attention and the affection of everybody. You could not buy and sell without calling the Caesar Lord. Domitian was the emperor of the time. And Domitian would have get this, 24 men dressed in white walking around the city around him, worshiping him and singing to him. And when they would stop in the city, they would bow their knee to Emperor Domitian and say, Domitian is Lord, Caesar is Lord. Does that sound familiar? It's literally what John sees in Revelation, sees in the throne room of heaven, but there's one difference from what's happening on earth to what's happening in ultimate reality, what's happening in heaven. And John goes, friends, I, I gotta tell you this, guess who's not on the throne in heaven? Domitian ain't there. It's not the Caesar. He actually says that there is the one who lives forever and ever on the throne. You'll notice that he doesn't mention the name of Jesus. It's not because it's not Jesus on the throne, but the reason why he doesn't mention the name of Jesus in this particular part of the letter is because if you, as a follower of Jesus, were walking around with a letter that said someone else is Lord other than the Caesar, you would lose your life and anybody connected to your movement would be sought out and would be tortured and would be killed. And so John, from Jesus, is writing a letter and he's reminding these Christians, these first century followers of Jesus, that Domitian is not on the throne, that all creation does not worship Domitian, that creation actually worships the lion of the tribe of Judah, that creation worships the lamb of God who was slain. This is like Jesus to John, to those first century Christians saying, listen, I know that if you say my name out loud, they're going to kill you. So let's not play that game. Let's play a different game. Let's play, what are the other names that we could call Jesus and know that he's Lord? 
Like this is literally why John is writing these things and why Jesus is communicating that. Jesus is like, um, on the throne, it's me. So you can call me the lion of the tribe of Judah. You can call me the lamb of God who was slain. You can call me the root of David. And all of those things had very cultural Jewish context to it. It was like Jesus saying through John to the people, he thinks, Domitian thinks he's in charge and he's a fool. He's silly because I sit on the throne. Imagine if your life is on the line and then someone you love and trust and respect who spent three years with Jesus and now has a vision of Jesus, writes you a letter that says, guess who's in charge? The one who died for you and the one who rose from the grave for you. One theologian says that those elders sitting around the throne actually for a a good Jewish person would have immediately stirred up all sorts of thoughts in their hearts and in their minds because there's 24 of them and numbers in the Hebrew culture is very different than in our culture. In our culture, we use numbers to count things, but numbers in their culture, they use numbers to give quality or value to things. And so John tells them that there is 24 thrones. The first 12 represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The next 12 represent the 12 apostles or disciples, those that first followed Jesus. What, what's being communicated here is that God is still up to something, friends. And you may not have Jesus physically on earth like he was for three years, but you know who represents Jesus on earth. You do. And it's been that way since the beginning. That's why he mentions the 12 tribes. It's why he mentions the 12 apostles. It's like John is saying to that first audience, God is always up to something good in you and through you. Man, I know it's hard. I know things are heavy. I know life is difficult. I know you've lost those that you love that have led you. But what I need you to know, from the mouth of Jesus from the throne room in heaven is God's got this because God's got you. And they're not just weightless words. These Christians received this letter and it was hope in their hands. Because like you and like me, they're as human as you and me. And they probably had moments where they were like, well, you know, if we just said Caesar is Lord, it probably would ease things a bit. You know, if we, if we just did what they asked us to do and, and, and maybe recant our faith publicly, but follow Jesus privately, it would probably be easier to get food and drink. And I'm sure that they wrestled with those things like we wrestle with each and every day. They wrestled with the why God questions, how God questions. And yet they received this letter and they're reminded, God, God's got this because he's got you. This is what this letter, this moment means to them. But there's a lot that it can mean for us. So let's talk about you for a moment. Let's talk about you as a worshiper for a moment because the truth is, is worship is hard but worship is also holy. It's hard 
Because the most well-known form of worship, the one that we practice most often, is what we just did for the last few minutes in this room. We had music. We were singing songs that were written about God to God to remind us of who he is and who we are. And, and honestly, some of us, we do well in that moment, but for most of us, we struggle in that moment, don't we? We're wondering, am I singing too loud? Can they hear me sing really loud? Will they find out that I'm not Whitney Houston and that I'm Mike Frisch? Will they, will they hear that, right? What do, what do I do with my, ha- my hands? Like, right? Like, you, have you been there? <laughs> you know, do I, do I, is this, the, we lift, do we lift now? How high do I lift? Right? And then I think for a lot of us, during that moment of singing, we, we, we worship more, not focused front, but more focused side, where we're going, they know the words, how come I don't know the words? Or, how come I can't do what they're doing? Am I doing this right? Have you been there? I think all of us have had a moment where we've wondered, where we've thought, is this okay? Am I doing this right? And here is the real honest, truthful answer, if that's your question. If my, am I doing this right? The answer is no. You're not. You're not doing it right. And, and the reality is because of the posture of our heart. The, the mindset, the focus of where we've placed our focus. Because it's on everything else. And everyone else. And on my hands, and on my body, and on the words. The reality is, is a lot of us struggle with worship because our focus is on everything else but the one who sits on the throne. Are you with me? And that is not a judgment of you or a judgment of me. It's just a reality of this wrestling match we have with worship. It's hard, right? And worship isn't just about songs. Worship is about a rhythm of life that you and I step into. The one who sits on the throne invites us into what is most real, what is most honest, what is most vulnerable. That's why worship is hard. To worship is to go where life is most real. That's why it's holy, because it takes you out of where you are, and it puts you in a place where God is leading you. And we struggle with that. Uh, Eugene Peterson is a great theologian and has shared some really powerful things over the years for Christians and for people. He wrote this about worship. In worship, every sign of life and every impulse to holiness, every bit of beauty and every spark of vitality, Hebrew patriarchs, Christian apostles, wild animals, domesticated livestock, human beings, soaring birds are arranged around this throne center that pulses light, showing each at its best, picking up all the colors of the spectrum in order to show off all the glories. Translation, 
It's real and honest and true and vulnerable and you can't pretend, you can't deny, you can't excuse. When you are in the mode of worshiping God, you cannot bring anything in that's dark or anything in that's fake because worship tears all of that away. And notice what Eugene Peterson says because of what John wrote down, because of what John saw. He's like, this isn't just about humanity. This is about all creation. Like even the things that are big and giant and scary are worshiping Jesus. Because they understand where affection and attention should be. And we can struggle with this because isn't it easier to pretend? Isn't it easier to pretend that we have it all together? Some of you, you walked into this room maybe for the first time today, and the assumption that you had is all of these people have it all together. (laughs) It's funny, right? Because as I say that, you know you, and you immediately want to go, um, well, I don't. We have this assumption that just because we walk into a building that we call the church— That's a sacred space. That the people that are here have it all together and they're not messy. Oh, my friend. (laughs) You, you walked into a mess. There are people who are addicted. There are people who are struggling. There are people who are just hanging on. There are people that are embarrassed. There are people that live in regret. There are people that are broken. There are people that are ashamed. There are people that have been indifferent. There are people in this place that think that they are the only one. And yet they showed up like you showed up because we all recognize that we need the one who sits on the throne. And that, yes. That is what worship leads us into. Worship is about getting honest with God about your need for God. Fellas, can I, can I speak to you for a moment? Ladies, you can take the next five minutes off. Fellas, the scriptures are very clear about the role that we get to play in life. And it's a role that all people get to play. We get to be a part of the kingdom of God. We get to tell the story of God. But the scriptures are clear that there is an opportunity for us as men to be influential in our families, in our workplaces, in our world. You know, we use that word influencer a lot to talk about those that are on like social media and and they do influence the world in good ways and in bad. But I think the greatest influencer are those that choose to worship. To worship is to influence. You have influence, fellas. You don't get it. You have it. You get to decide what you're going to do with it. And when you choose not to worship, when you choose to prioritize anything other than the one who sits on the throne, then you know what happens? What happens is all of the weight that you are designed and created to carry gets passed off to all of those around you that you say that you love, and now they have to carry it. Because somebody has to carry it. Here's an example. Do you find it interesting that most churches are predominantly female than male? 
The reason for that is because a lot of men have decided to not worship. And they've decided to allow their girlfriend or their significant other or their wife to carry all of the weight. Why do you think Mother's Day is one of the highest attended church services in all of the world? Because mama said, you're going to church with me. But mama also knows that there's a weight that she's carrying and part of that weight that she's carrying might be that her husband or her significant other, the the men in her life have decided to not carry the weight along with her. And when we choose not to worship, fellas, we're choosing to pass the weight on to everyone around us. Men, if you want your kids to be good, godly, holy individuals who follow Jesus and bring good into this world. Don't drop them off at church. Lead the way while you're with them at church. You want them to be generous? Then you should be generous. You want them to be forgiving? Then you should be forgiving. You want them to deal with generational issues that are deep within them? Then you deal with it first. Some of you have Life stories that ended with you because you said, no longer are we going to continue to live in this cyclical, terrible, sinful, ungodly way. It ends here and it ends now. And some of you, men, that will happen in your family when you lift your hands to the one who sits on the throne. You all right? Because that is what worship does for you and for me. And when I share those things, I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to me and you. Because I want to be a man who lifts my hands to the one who sits on the throne. Let me take you back to what John sees. He says in verse 10, there were 24 elders that fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him. This is just a reminder that they... Those elders represent those in their time, but it also can represent us in our time. John wants us to see that the epicenter of ultimate reality is around the throne. Like, this isn't an image or a made-up story. John is writing this going, this is happening right now! And you can participate in it. That all life should be centered around God, who is the God of creation, and he reminds us of what creation does. In the center around the throne, verse 6, were four living creatures. These are the creatures that have different faces. They have eyes all over them, and maybe you're like, well, what does that even mean? Pause for a moment. Here's what you need to know. Even the things that you and I are afraid of and scared of and run from, those things understand that affection and attention, all affection and attention go to the one who sits on the throne. John the Baptist once said when he was standing with the people of God, the religious leaders, who were wanting him to stop telling the story of the one who is coming, the Messiah. John said, friends, if I shut my mouth, these rocks will cry out. Even the rocks know how to worship God. And you're smarter than a rock, right? At least that's what your mama said. This this is a picture of what it looks like to rightly arrange your life around the one who sits on the throne. Jesus actually talked about this when his disciples asked, hey, could you teach us to pray? 
Could you teach us to rightly arrange our lives around the story that you're telling, around the kingdom of God, around you? And Jesus goes, I'd be happy to. And one of the things that he taught them to say in their prayers, not word for word, but posture of the heart, were these words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That you can pray and say, God, how it is up there, we want it down here. We demand it down here. And then what we see in Revelation is that God is communicating, oh, it's coming. And you know how it comes? It comes through you and through me. You want heaven on earth? It comes through you and what you say and what you do. I want heaven on earth? It comes through what I say and what I do. I get to be an agent of what theologians call convergent space. You know what convergent space is? Those moments where you just can't tell if it's heaven or earth because the veil feels so thin. Sometimes we feel it most when we lose someone we love and we're in a space like this and we're honoring the memory of their story and it it just feels like heaven and earth are so thin. And isn't it true in those moments the ones that you're upset with that are in your family that are sitting in that same room with you, suddenly the things that you're upset about, they don't go away. They need to be redeemed and reconciled, but suddenly they're not the priority anymore, are they? Suddenly you realize like, oh man, it feels like, it feels like heaven's in this room. And on the joyful side, many of you have experienced that being in this place. This is like a sacred place for you when we sing a song and it felt like it was the words that you needed to hear in your soul or someone who's communicating from this stage said something to you or said something in that day and it felt like it was directly to you. I love those moments where some of you will come up afterwards and go, how did you know? How did you know what was happening this week, last night? I didn't. It's because we have a God who's on the throne who invites us to live in convergent space. Those moments where you're like, I just was stirred up. I just was moved. I was invited. I was challenged. That's what convergent space is. It reminds us of who comes first. Edmund Clowney, author, theologian, scholar, puts it this way. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are in term alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. Does that not represent the world that we live in? And when I say the world that we live in, it's the world that you and I live in. It's not them, it's an us issue. How often do we run? to placebos. By the way, a placebo is just something to make you think that it's actually doing something. (laughs) How often do we run to things so that we can feel at peace when in reality it's not peace at all? How often do we participate in, in relationships so that we can experience love and it's not love at all? How often can we say yes to things? 
because we're running from, I, I love the word that he uses. We're, we're running from all of this specter. We're running from all of this, all the things that alarm us. And how often can we run to something that I just, I just need a drink. I just need this. I just got to fill my body or my mind with that. What we, what we learned, Edmund Cloudy says, it's a placebo. It's not a savior. It's not the one who sits on the throne. The reason why you got to keep going back to it is because it's not satisfying your soul. This is why we worship. A life without worship is a life that's misaligned. Where we think that I'm better. You know what it'd be like? It'd be like after church today. My family usually leaves before I leave. They go back home. And so I'll show up about a half hour later on as we finish what we're doing here. And it would be like me arriving home and opening the front door and my family is there, my three kids, my wife, and then some dude. There's just some dude in my living room, right? Wearing my bathrobe, holding my remote, sitting in my chair, watching my angels, right? Like, like he's, he's got everything that's mine. And I'd be like, dude, what are you doing here? And he would be like, you know, I think that I could be a better husband and dad and pastor than you can. So I've decided to move in and take over. That's what happens when we decide to not worship the one that's on the throne. We decide to build our own thrones and we say to God, hey God, this dude is going to do it better than you. Now, for clarity, if I get home today and there is <laughs> some dude in my house, then you're going to see this dude on the news going, I got him, I got him, right? Like, <laughs> This, this is what happens when we decide to build our own thrones, when we decide to not worship. We think that we can do better than God. Hear me, you can't, so stop it. You're not better than God. You might question God and doubt God, and you might wonder about God, and all of that is healthy and holy and good. Ask all the questions you want. God can handle it. He's not afraid of it. He has things that have eyes all over him that worship him. He's not afraid of you or your questions. You don't need to walk away. Engage. Lean in. Do it again. Come back. This this is why John shows us what this room looks like. And then he, he shares something that is so remarkable, but also very detailed and contextual. That I want to read it to you, and then I want to help you understand it. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, if in this time, if you had a scroll, if you were somebody who was important, you would have a scroll that would have writing on one side that would tell all the tales of your accomplishments, all of the ways that you deserve praise. And that would be an earthly thing. John says, I see a scroll that has writing on 
both sides, meaning that it couldn't just fit on one side to tell the story of whoever it's about. There's writing on both sides. And you know, in that time, they didn't have paper like we have paper. And so if you wrote, it would bleed through. So there would not be a scroll that exists in the time of real life where John is living that would have writing on both sides. It would have writing just on one side. Are you with me? So John sees this scroll with writing on both sides and a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could do that. They could open the scroll or even look inside. N.T. Wright, scholar, theologian, says the scroll represents who has the power to bring meaning to life. And the reason why they're asking the question who can open it is because everybody wants meaning. And so John says, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, and listen, listen, listen. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Here's the message. No more tears, friends, because the thing that you're pursuing that's a placebo cannot give you meaning, but the one who can give you meaning is here, and he can open up the scroll, and he can help you tell a better story, friends, and his name is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is the one who has come that we call Lord. All of this is powerful and good. The invitation of Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 is found in this act of worship that could be summarized in what John experienced in that moment. It could be summarized in three words. See, hear, believe. See the beauty of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Hear the truth that God is communicating through his word, through Jesus, through the scriptures, and respond with words of confession so that you can align your heart and mind to that God and then believe it, then live it. Notice it doesn't start with believe because we have to see and hear in order to do. Notice it's not blind faith. Notice it's not just taking it without facts and without stories and without data. John says, here's what I saw. Here's what I heard. Friends, let's believe and let's go. This is the invitation of worship for you. Worship is more than just songs, but it's also our songs. Worship is more than just singing, but it's also our singing. Worship is more than what we've made it out to be. Worship is not performative, but it is inviting you to live in a way that tells the story of Jesus. And this is what we see in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. The invitation is this. Worship gets, gets, the worship of God gets you off your throne so that you can bend the knee before God's throne. This is why we sing, but it's also why we live the way that we live. It's why we're honest and real and vulnerable. It's why we talk very honestly and real and very vulnerably. We see and we hear and we believe in the God who sits on the throne. And then John is like, can I just, can I just take you back and remind you of the Jesus who sits on the throne? Could I just remind you 
of the one who is for you and not against you? Because I think for some of us, that Jesus never grew up with us. He's still the Jesus that we learned about when we were little in church. And he's still a little Jesus. For some of us, he's sweet baby Jesus, isn't he? For some of us, he's, he's precious, white, hair-dried Jesus, right? For some of us, he's not the powerful son of God who gave his life on the cross and resurrected from the grave. And so John's like, let me, just, let me just take you back and remind you of who it is that you are worshiping. Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. He is dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His hair, white like wool, white as snow. Some of you are dyeing your hair, but you should be more like Jesus and go gray and go white. Like that's, I don't know if that's the point of this part, but I think that it's powerful, right? His hair, white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like that of the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, and when John sees this, he bows down and worships Jesus. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead, and you would too, and so would I. And then Jesus placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever. See it, hear it, and believe it, friends. You, when you engage with Jesus, when you consider Jesus, when you're intrigued by Jesus and when you follow Jesus, you have found the one, hear me, who sits on the throne of all of the universe. And the reason why he deserves our worship is not because he sits on the throne. The reason why he deserves our worship is because he got off the throne and became like you and me and gave his life for you and for me. And then he invites us to believe in him because of what we see and hear. And that is why we follow and that is why we worship. Friends, this is who Jesus is. And this is who we worship. And this is why we worship. Today, you get to, to, to decide who will get your affection and who will get your attention. I want to finish our time together doing two things. We're going to take communion together, a moment where we acknowledge Jesus on the cross and what his death brought for us. And then we're going to sing together and then we'll be done. But instead of us taking communion on our own, I want to invite you to grab communion and to bring it back to remain standing and we'll take it together. So let me pray some words over you and then we'll grab communion. Don't take it, bring it back to your chair, remain standing and we'll take it together. Heavenly Father, may we be people that lift our hands. May we be people that give you our attention and affection. May we be people that align ourselves 
around the throne of the one who is the Lamb of God. May we, wherever we find ourselves on this faith journey, bend the knee to the one that allows us to have faith. May we see you, hear from you, and believe you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.